Here at Tall Tales, we are committed to promoting diversity and supporting small businesses. Here's one we think you're going to love. Hi, I'm Tessie, a freelance photo and video content creator, producing creative content for various clients. My work is quite versatile, featuring editorial, e-commerce, fashion and fine art creative portraits. Tessie Media's aim is to create more engaging content whilst creatively changing the digital media landscape. My journey began with just a love for taking photos. Later on comes the dream when you're at a stage of figuring out what career path to take. I chose to study digital media in college and it really kicked off from there. Post lockdown, I'm further building that dream to do what I love full time. I'm just really grateful for how far I've come and can't wait to see what's next. You can find Tessie on Facebook at Tessie Photography and on Instagram at Tessie underscore photography where you can have the chance to win a free two hour photography session. Hey, I'm Alan McGuire. And I'm Sarah Griffin. And this is Jude Media, a podcast where we talk to an interesting person about a bit of pop culture is important to when they were young. Our guest today is a writer and the host of Against Everyone with Connor Abib. It's Connor Abib. Yay! Hello. Welcome Hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi. Um, our, your thing today is really interesting. It's something I have not watched before. Sarah, it's new to you as well. Yeah, yeah. Please. I'm Introduce your thing. You don't talk to us about. <laughs> okay, so uh, my influential pop culture reference uh, is also a literary one. So it's the horror writer, director, painter, um, Clive Barker, uh, who really, I mean, in a lot of ways, just blew my mind and continues to into adult life. But uh, ended up being so important to me for so many reasons, and uh, we can just get into all those I yeah. guess so yeah. what age were you when you first experienced the work of Clive Barker you know it's funny because I was trying to pin that down because I knew I was coming in and like where did I get the first book or what was that first book but <clears throat> the truth is it you know sometime in my early teen years and I can't quite remember because as soon as I got any of it I just got all of it like I tried mm. to find as much as possible and just sort of you know sink into the bloodbath <laughs> um <laughs> of his work and i think at that point there must have been a few movies out there must have been two hellraiser movies nightbreed and Candyman, kind of towards the end of that but um i was also reading his books uh mostly books of blood uh, which is a series of short stories which are the first things he ever put out and um I think my older brother, who's 13, uh, was maybe reading something by him. And I wasn't supposed to read horror novels as a kid or watch violent movies. My mom would take them away. And Stephen King was so iconic that there was no hiding that. But yeah. with Clive Barker, you still like the covers were obviously horror covers, but she still like she wouldn't see the spine and know right away. She might think it was a fantasy novel. And in fact, many of his novels are fantasy novels. So, yeah. It was that early, like that formative, like it, a, um, I didn't know that he was a novelist. I, I feel like I was aware of the seminal works that he had put out without attaching them all to the same name until literally this week. Uh -huh. Like he's somebody who came to me very, very recently. But what ways would you say that like his work encouraged you onwards as a, an, like a maker of things? Yeah. So, um, one of the ways is his work is very, 
it's romantic. So um, I think that the sort of romanticism of all of it and the, the eroticism of all the horror, but it's not like twilight eroticism where it's mm. all this kind of gaudy melod. I mean, some of it is a bit melodramatic, but it's not gaudy. It's actually just you feel longing just coming out of everything that he does. And also the sympathy with the monsters, um, the you know, especially in Nightbreed, the whole movie is about, you know, how the monsters are better than people, basically, um, which is based on a short story called Cabal. But then also uh, he had gay stuff in some of his stories. So that was pretty huge for me, um, you know, in <clears throat> I think it was my favorite story by him, which is called In the Hills, the Cities. You know, one of the opening scenes is these two gay guys driving around Europe and looking at churches and they like pull over and after they have a fight, they have sex in a field, you know? And so for me, it was just like, what, 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 you know? <laughs> um, so there is that, but then I think even more than any of that, I was so obsessed with him that I bought this hardcover book that was just interviews with him. Um, I think it was called, I can't find it anymore. Unfortunately, I think it was called shadows in Eden. And um, it, he was such an, he was such like an intellectual and I'd never really encountered a fiction writer that was like that before that, you know, had a, his really his own way of talking about religion and bodies and sex and terror and fear. And it was so inspiring to me because I thought, oh, you don't just write, you think about writing, you know, mm -hmm. and that, that really blew my mind. That's mm. I feel like when I watched Hellraiser, like while on one hand, like Pinhead has become kind of visually ubiquitous, like I, I you, you see him on T-shirts and posters and like that. I know what that monster's name is. One thing I was in terms of the compassion that you see in the work, I was really surprised by how kind of like the Cenobites aren't gentle, but they aren't like I feel like the way that he approaches fear and terror is really, really different from anything I've seen before or like mm. the way that that is in that story, that they're like. They're malevolent, but they're not, I don't know. They're, I'm not going to say they were gentle <laughs> because mm. they obviously weren't. But I feel like that compassion thing with the monster is really, uh, was really surprising, I think. Mm. About well, they've like well. kind of moved beyond good and evil, the Cenobites, where Frank is the real like villain of right because he's still like subject to human desires where they've gone fully out into where it's all like one just everything is this pain and pleasure all this one one, one thing. thing where yeah, frank yeah, yeah. is still like subject to human desires and that's why he's the, the villain i think yeah like and it is camp on one hand mm. but it's also the campness of it is also a kind of a like it, it's not it's not silly do you know mm -hmm. it just is very sincere mm -hmm. and i think that's what i liked about that it stuck so out to me as well when the i watched it there was no jokes in hellraiser no, at all no like, <laughs> no gags. like all other like mm -hmm. like early 80s are uh, most horror i've like i'm not a <clears throat> horror watcher really most of the horror i watch is like very self-aware scream mm. i know it's a last summer kind of level kevin where was great none of these films were what i was expecting at all from mm -hmm. them especially um hellraiser because my main impression of it is from a poster in a video shop in like 1991 when i was seven in uh, i don't know if this is the same in america but in ireland before we had like chain video stores it would be the local grocery store would have two shelves of vhs's oh, all right. and it would basically every it would be down to what the that individual shop owner was into 
So our local one had a load of horror. Some mad shit yeah. going on in Waterford. Like, I, I remember begging my mother to watch Killer Clowns from Outer Space when I was seven. And she let us watch it for like the first 10 wow. minutes until the clown punched someone's head off into a bin. She was like, Fair. nope. Okay, we're but that, so my image of Hellraiser was always just, I thought it was like the good place in like a neon goth hellscape mm. kind of slasher film. And it's not that at all. No. It's like a little British horror film. Yeah. About, yeah. yeah. A, a, a zombie, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- so... The no jokes thing is really interesting. It is. It's it's serious. It's sincere. It's and sincere. it and it pulls it off. I mean, yeah. some of the effects obviously are not so great. It's in a the, touch mm. of Jason and the Argonauts sometimes, but I was mm. kind of like, yeah, go on. Like that that, that right. riled me up. I was just like, come on. We love to see it. And I, I found that exciting rather than disappointing. Mm-hmm. Aged effects sometimes make me just kind of go, oh, for fuck's sake, like mm. get that CGI away from me. But when it's Weird flesh, or oh, it's because if you can if you can touch it, then it can touch you. Yeah, ugh, which yeah, CGI yeah. can't. No, so. there's a, and that that feeling is still there, yeah. but it's also exciting. Yeah, do you know, and the sincerity adds to the excitement or something. Mm-hmm, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in fact, like in Hellraiser three, so. When you guys reached out, I was like, here are the, and I knew there was no way for you to get to like all or everything. But it's like just the first two Hellraisers because in three, then it does get a little jokey. Like there's a Cenobite that like shoots like compact discs out of its, (laughs) you know, like, and it's just, it's, it's not bad, but it's still, you know, conceptually it's a little interesting, but those also had sort of departed from his influence at that point, really. Um, you know, uh, and so then a- after that, yeah, they get this kind of like sort of funny, self-aware in the wrong way kind of vibe. But these were just more the first two especially are like, all right, you want to see um, a representation of passion and desire and love. Here it is, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's not, I mean, passion and desire and love are not funny. I mean, they're, they're, you can unfurl them into humor and, and play. But when it's bad, it's that. real serious. Yeah. It's real, like, or I, when it's good, it's real bad and real serious. Like, yeah. It's just so serious. Like Julia is such a, like, I kept calling her Mary Robinson last night and I kind of ruined everything. I was just like, Mary, like, cause she kind of has that, that look, you know? Um, but I also, I, Jesus God love her. Like she's in a terrible, like terrible position. Mm. Do you know what I mean? She is done for. Mm-hmm. Like, what did I keep calling him? Monkey Frank. Frank was just like, I am literally a bunch of a bunch of sinew. Mm-hmm. Wet sinew. Get so me damp. some men yeah. to Wet put on myself yeah. and I will do sex on you again. And she's yeah. like, absolutely. <laughs> that is like, that. in college we always used to say good dick will imprison you, but Jesus Christ, uh-huh. like Hellraiser is good dick will imprison you. Good dick is a trap. Good yeah. dick will take you to hell. It'll yeah. take you to hell and you'll be like, absolutely, no problem, man. It, it is, it is. So there, that's based on a, a very short book called The Hellbound Heart, which is really beautiful. It doesn't have the Cenobites in it in this quite the same way, but it's really a beautiful book but for me also a precursor because i as i grew older became really obsessed with patricia highsmith and unfortunately those also those narratives also formed my conception of what love is and my model of how to be in love which is uh grasping on to someone who hates you so much that they love you and that you love so much that you hate as you fall off a bridge to your doom so (laughs) you know it's like that (laughs) that model but you know seeing it sort of yes with the flesh in was really important and i remember reading an interview with him too in that book where he said you know when Stephen King writes about um 
sex, he always seems kind of embarrassed. He's like, why would you be embarrassed about that? Like, it's actually just part of our lives. And so that really plays in, the body really plays in. And in fact, it's funny because Clive Barker really rose to fame in the US based on the movies, but also, you know, Stephen King blurms everything now. But back then he didn't quite so much. And his blurb for Clyde Barker was something like, I've seen the future of horror and it's Clyde Barker. And everybody had been waiting for Stephen King to be like, this is the heir, you know, apparent. <laughs> and he and he did it. And that blurb alone, back when those things meant something, it really blew up. And I think one of the things that made him so different and made him so compelling as opposed to reading like Dean Koontz or someone like that, was that he would engage with sex and the body and pleasure and well. I read a little interview yeah. with him about that last night where he was really annoyed by how censored Hellraiser ended up where mm. there was some argument about thrust numbers that you could show two thrusts but mm. not three. <laughs> and uh, you could show all of these hooks in flesh and all of this like mm. abstract level violence and, and like carnal horror but three thrusts was too much. <laughs> <laughs> and he was just completely baffled by that you know and there was there was some nudity that was replaced with clothes scenes and he was confused by how that wasn't like permitted in the same way as the violence was you know yeah. and like me and Carrie were talking this last night that like depicting sex or like a uh, big argument in our house is just like movies aren't like sexy enough anymore like there's no sexy things really sexy things happening on screen so going back and watching tv from the 90s is sometimes a bit jarring because you're like everyone here like wants to fuck oh my god uh like star trek even everyone is like just all the time and it's jarring because there's been this gradual kind of wash of violence over sexuality because sex is riskier to show it feels like it can fail more quickly on screen cause that sincerity problem, right? Mm -hmm. And also mm -hmm. the absurdity of it as well. But there was never a point in Hellraiser where I felt it was gazy or manipulative or, mm -hmm. do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. was talk about fucking enthusiastic consent. Do you know what I mean? Julie was like, absolutely, <laughs> let's fucking roll, you know? Like it, yeah. was, it was great. You know? Yeah, it's interesting you bring the censorship thing up too, because so in Hellraiser 2, which I think, uh, yeah, someone else directed, but Clyde Barker wrote. There's a scene where this um, guy who's kind of bonkers, you know, he's like in a straitjacket and they give him, and he gives him a, ra this doctor gives him a razor and he just starts slicing himself up. And there's just a two second thing where he like slices his crotch and you, there's no, like, it's not like he's naked, but there was two versions of the movie. There's one where they show that one second thing and one where they don't. Now, this is particularly bizarre because there's a Cenobite in that movie that floats around attached to a giant penis, which has inserted itself into his head. Wow. So you get, see, you can see like <laughs> literally this tentacle <laughs> penis, like it is almost like, you know, uh, hentai, you know, mm. like this tentacle penis, like where this guy is floating around and really, it's really beautiful in a lot of ways. These like flowers come out of his fingers that have razor blades in them and all this. And, but that you can't show like this two second thing. And it's the quarantine of certain aspects of the body, which is very strange. And he, you know, just refuses to engage with that in his own work. You know, he has a story called Rawhead Rex, which is about a demon attacking the sort of, I think it's the British countryside, although it might be in Wales, I'm not sure. 
And I mean, it's called Rawhead Rex. Like it is about a giant penis, you know? And there's this whole moment where like this has this encounter with this like woman and her feminine power and stuff like that. So it's, I mean, he's obviously engaged in this. And so the censorship would be a particular slight because it's the point. It's not just an accoutrement, you know? Yeah, it's not just like a a tease. Or again, the gaze thing is interesting because it's not like titillating, Mm -hmm. do you know? It's, Mm -hmm. it's, more sincere than that do you know there's more heart or something in Mm -hmm. it than that like it's and that's it like i don't know you just don't i that's what i found the most stirring like i don't i don't think i just like Hellraiser. i think i fucking love that film Mm -hmm. i think i i felt stuff when i was watching it Mm -hmm. do you know and uh i don't know i just don't think there's much like it and that the british sensibility thing is interesting because i didn't again i'm so new and into clive barker that like i didn't know who's english but like i like that backdrop and I thought it was really interesting, especially going into Candyman, like that those are British flats as well as <laughs> yeah, Chicago, Chicago flats, yeah. do you know? Yeah. And I think that that channel between English horror and sort of transposed into America or like linked into American stuff is really mm. compelling as well. I don't know. It was something that I felt in, um, in Hellraiser as well. I was like, it's real English. Do you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, but Candyman also felt real English, even though it was inherently American. Do you know? Yeah, yeah, it's true. Like the that's that's interesting. I never really thought about that part that the sort of crossover into an America American setting because that's another I think failure of Hellraiser three and like some of the subsequent movies is that it loses some of that um, repression, you know, that comes with it, you know? Yeah. yeah. But, but Candyman, I think really pulls it off actually, um, quite well. And so does, there's another movie called Lord of Illusion, which has a bunch of different settings, but, um, in, in the U S with Scott Bakula as like the main character and, um, and some of the stories as well. And then Nightbreed also, which David Cronenberg is one of the characters in it. So there's, um, there's a very Americanness to some of his uh, stuff that does get pulled off. I think quite well. Mm-hmm. Like a di- like I don't know, like an exchange between things. Like because was it the daughter Christy, the final girl, the bri- mm-hmm. She's yeah. a brilliant yeah. final girl. Yeah, uh, is Christy. American. Yeah, and uh, there's I don't <laughs> know, just an interesting interplay there. I think I loved her. I loved her so mm. much. She's fabulous. Yeah, she's great. Like she, I. It just has, I feel like there was kind of a touch of the Winona Ryder about her, do you know, where it's mm. just like eyeball, mm. you know, and uh, I don't think there was much scream. I, I read something last night that was like, there was no screaming really in Hellraiser and no screaming at all in Candyman until the very, very end. Ah, uh-huh. uh, and that they used hypnosis as like the kind mm. of, narr- we'll get into Candyman later, but there's a narrative use of sort of trance and hypnosis <laughs> on uh, Helen because they don't want the female scream to be sort of pervasive through the story and mm. in the very final scene there is a scream mm. but um i don't know i i feel like i had all my expectations completely subverted and i like it, watching those two pieces of work made me more curious than satisfied do you know mm. it was like oh shit i think i love this mm. i think i want to go and find everything out about this mm. um and they were scary they were, but not bad scary. Mm-hmm. Like exciting scary. I don't know. Alan, did you did you find them kind of freaky or like? I thought I didn't like gore, but uh, then but then I was watching Hellraiser going, "This is really good." I was enjoying the artistry of the gore and the imagination mm. of it rather than because I think Gratuity. possibly when I would have started 
what horror films would have been like widely available to me was like the Hostel era. I was going to say no Saw and Hostel, yeah. which mm-hmm. and Saw is a great mystery story, yeah. but it's also fucking unnecessarily gross, especially as the saga mm. goes on, you mm. know, and it's gratu- gratuity and like artlessness, whereas the gore in Hellraiser is really like interesting. It's unsettling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's like, ugh. I just really liked it. Yeah. I'm really, glad, I'm really glad you brought it to us because I've never would have seen it otherwise. Like, definitely. Because yeah. I had to spend a euro on Google Play to watch it. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. it's, just, it's not a choice abso- I would have made. That, yeah. And that's, you assume, especially with discourse. It's not on Netflix or anything. None yeah, it's are. one of those really weird, weird ones. Yeah. Um, but also with discourse around old films, I often feel like I don't want to go back to them. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Because it's like, oh, I guess. You know, what's the point? You know, especially with Candyman. I thought that I just knew what Candyman was about because I had been told. So I grew up next to a block of flats, three blocks of flats, and was fucking shook at the visuals of Candyman because they were so, especially the bonfire, because it was Mm. fucking so like uh, Swan's Nest, like alarmingly like it. And the kids in So That came in 1992. And the kids that I went to school with just used to tell the exact plot of the film. The baby, the headless dog, the little boy, the bathrooms, beat for beat. They used to sit around and tell the story of the film like an urban legend. <laughs> Vulcan, it felt like every day, right? Uh-huh. So I was like, I, as an adult, I was just like, yeah, yeah there's like a part, there's like flats and the dog gets his head cut off. And, you know, like, I feel like I know it like a kind of a poem or a prayer or something. And then when I sat down and watched it, I was like, these fucking monologues are insane. The right. bees. No one ever mentioned the bees to me. Um, <laughs> the fucking, uh, vi- like the visual art. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, how do you feel about Candyman? Like, yeah, what's yeah, your vibe yeah. <laughs> well, I want to go back to something that you guys both said for a second and then talk about Candyman, yeah. which is that weirdly, like these films are not included in like the sort of standard horror canon when people mm. think about it. Like you might think, oh, Hellraiser is like one of those movies. But you could sort of link, I mean, they have been linked in a movie together, but you can sort of link like Freddy, Jason, you know, you can think of Scream, you can think of the Saw movies, all that. There's this kind of tradition. But these movies, like Clyde Barker's work in general, it just stands outside of all of it. Yeah. It doesn't relate itself to anything else because nothing nothing really comes close or is like it. And I think for some of the reasons that we've already talked about, but like that is, I think, maybe why it might stand outside the kind mm-hmm. of you you know you 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 just when your mind just wouldn't go there like what is this weird thing is it just some you know like uh just some gore movie from like the late 80s or something like yeah. that but you know and then you look into it and it's a fan i mean it's a fantasy you know i mean it is horror but it's a dark fantasy film and i don't think i'm not particularly scared by hellraiser although i remember when I was younger, thinking, what would I do? Like, if the Cenobites showed up, like, how would I? Do- how would you bargain? How would yeah, I? Yeah, exactly, yeah, 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 because yeah. Kirsty like bargains with them, basically. Yeah. You know? Um. But Candyman is scary. Um. I think it's it's a much more frightening Rich. film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's because the whole principle of if you don't if you don't believe, then you're in trouble, which is. You know, I mean, that's a trope of horror movies. You know, the person who says, you know, nothing's there, you know, they often get They're killed. Like first you know or I mean? second, yeah, yeah. 
But um, <clears throat> but in Candyman, you don't believe, but you want to, which is also interesting to me. Like she's really called into it in the same way in Hellraiser. But the people who are called into it in Hellraiser, they know they're going to solve that box and the thing is going to show up um, or they're going to try at least to solve the box for as long as they can. And then something's going to happen. But with Candyman, it's kind of like, sure, I'll, I'll solve the puzzle, but nothing's going to happen. And then, of course... Everything you know. happens. Mm. Yeah. And it's very sad as well. Mm. Like the thing that happens, uh, Candyman as a figure, it's devastating. And it could be because his dialogue is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, but he's really compelling. Mm -hmm. Do you know? Like he's frightening, but like the things that are frightening are about the film aren't him for me or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I found it more compelling than that. But that, the, the two strands of belief that you can kind of go down in that world is that you can believe in the mythology and then you're part of the keeping the legacy of the Candyman alive, right? You're part of the urban legend. You're a participant in this legacy. Like, it, you allow him immortality, right? But then there's the other Candyman who is the guy who just carries a fucking hook around the flats, mm -hmm. uh, running the place and keeping everybody under his thrall, right? right. So if you, like, that duality is really interesting in terms of like power and fear and communities that are uh, kept in control in some capacity well, it's does that balance, make sense isn't it? yeah He's, that, that fake Candyman's keeping a balance and then this white person comes in and goes I'm not I'm not a cop or I'm not going to ruin anything and she ruins everything yeah. <laughs> she's <laughs> still a cop she's still a cop the entire balance of this, right. this and area. I didn't expect that to be handled so bluntly like mm. I mean that could be my own like staggering ignorance but it was quite surprising to me mm. for her to actually say out loud as a line of dialogue Jesus a woman could be murdered in this building that a white woman comes in gets her face punched and the cops show up do you mm. know like she actually notices the disparity in what year was that? Yeah. 22 it's yeah. very stark it's, it's pretty profound like I mean there are certainly complaints about the way race is handled in that movie that um, I don't feel I'm the most qualified person mm. to issue but at, you know, as a kid growing up in small town Pennsylvania in the U.S. and seeing that movie, it was like a pretty profound representation of racial tension and conflict for me. But also like just in the idea that, you know, the people in Cabrini Green all had their myths and their ideas and their stories about this figure. Mm -hmm. And then it's just like... You know, like whiteies from the university, like better she, study your myths. Yes, yeah. and, she, and interestingly, she also had her sort of like um, strangely quiet black friend. Exactly, who was interested, but kind of Cautious. occupied this kind. Of, yes, exactly. Yeah. And so she was just like, gonna go investigate, you know, mm. and as in, you know, every David Lynch movie, you know, like the person that investigates, the lesson is don't investigate because it will <laughs> fuck you up, yeah, right? Like you're it'll gone. really you're in the lodge yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Like the, there are people who know and people who don't know. And if you're one of the people who don't know, don't try to know because there's gonna be trouble, which is always interesting with David Lynch because then people try to figure out what the movies are about. And I'm always like, what have you learned nothing from watching this movie? Don't try to figure <laughs> don't it out. Ask. The movie like, is just, the talking. Yes, exactly. So, <laughs> So, but um but yeah so she you know she goes in you know with this sort of um brazen academic anthropological lens but then it's a white gaze as well it's somebody totally like, casting a, a, a white intellectualism onto uh, a place where she has fucking no business right and and the, the presumption is that there's not a reality to the stories that the people are sharing there yeah. and i love how you say this like knocked out of whack it's like yes there's a containment by having these uh, this like uh, 
whatever you want to call this guy that walks around with a hook, like patrolling as, you know, a representation of Candyman. It does kind of keep everything in place. It keeps the legend present enough for people that they're not going to tempt the fates, you know, and then, um, you know, and so it has this sort of weird balance, almost as if someone like, I, it's almost like a little bit of a Scooby-Doo thing where you have like the ghost, you know, yeah. but it, it, it's just a person. But that keeps everybody in a certain state, except in Scooby-Doo. It's just because they it, want it the, 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 gold, the gold or something like that. Yeah. 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 It, it's, it keeps and that uncertainty and that blur is how I think we all know in the year of our Lord 2020 that chaos and confusion and blur is how people stay in line. Yes. That people don't yeah. complain. They don't overthrow. They, they remain within systems that benefit the people who hold power mm-hmm. like even on a community level if you blur the lines between what is real and what isn't mm-hmm. and that's i think what was happening in that environment that the myth benefited the living person who called himself the candy man mm-hmm. you know but that and that benefited the real candy man because there was this mm-hmm. it also benefited confusion. the community because people weren't looking in the mirror quite so much and saying his name and there was a kind of like altar and 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 whatever to him i mean in some the ways amazing. you know oh. in some ways this guy was like yes he's bad news he's you know um he's violent however he is almost sort of keeping things in place like in some ways he's sort of the jenga piece that when you pull him out which she does um helen does like yeah the whole thing kind of falls apart so you need that externalized like interlocutor you know uh, almost almost in some ways a, it's a kind of shamanic figure you know um mediating the the supernatural forces and so yeah she goes in she knocks it out um with her disbelief and her blunt academic dumb dumbness and um, on her extreme Gillian anderson face oh my gosh <laughs> it's so weird the x-files was only a year later yeah. and this film is essentially like scotty gets framed for murder by a demon Mm. yeah yeah you know? like if you blur your eyes yeah. a little bit that is full jilly like that mm. is massive jilly and she <laughs> had a brush, brilliant eyes and there were mm. lovely shots of her in a very old-fashioned kind of not quite hammer but like you know and the, the, the shaft of light goes over her face and she's just like oh it's quite noir yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. there was lots of really like again i didn't find it gazy but i loved looking at her do you know she was a, like a very easy figure to watch through the story but totally. she also wasn't likable she wasn't somebody I felt empathic towards mm-hmm. like she was kind of a dick for doing it and I thought that the murder of her friend was a real like that was a twist I didn't see mm-hmm. coming I thought it was really fucking brutal mm-hmm. Um, the, the horror of the film is the relentlessness I think of it mm-hmm. do you know that it's just bad all the way down and I thought something I really like not liked liked is such a weird word but something I was really compelled by was uh, the kids in it Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the children in the horror and the the horror of I think his name was what was it Jake the, the little lad in the jacket it's Jake or James isn't it? yeah Jake or, or something, something. Yeah. and he was just so serious mm-hmm. he had such an ancient soul and like he was he was just like just a, a tremendous devastating performance mm-hmm. and then the baby right mm-hmm. so I get fucking real on edge and I see babies being put in danger if I'm just like fucking put that child down I don't like that and that kept me very on edge I know it's speaking to the carrying of the legacy and intergenerational trauma and intergenerational oppression and systems of oppression that like literally that baby is going to go through the same cycles and his mum Anne-Marie Anne-Marie her name was the mom 
can't remember. Uh, yeah. it, she was holding him. She's like, oh, he's not going to get him. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's acknowledged that there are systems that are right. waiting for this sweet baby, you know, and yeah. uh, literally being pulled out of the fire at the end. It's a bit on the nose, you uh-huh. know, <laughs> but allegedly, uh, not allegedly, literally uh, Jordan Peele's uh, retelling um, or continuation is about him. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah, I was. I've been wait. I guess that was supposed to come out and has been. Um, it's the end of the month. Locked down. Oh yeah, really? Yeah. Okay, so it's a good time to talk about the movie then. Um, I mean, yeah, and and so much of it is about belief too. You know, um, so like I was saying before, the belief in the stories, um, but also like her husband. You know, she she's trying to prove. He's awful. T- he's awful. She's yeah. trying to prove to him constantly that her research is worthy. And to, to do that, she has to be kind of like smarmy. I mean, you get a, the sense that some of her brazenness about going into Cabrini Green and like going into that, you know, the place where the Candyman's mouth is like oh framing God, the arch of the wall. Yeah. yeah, that that even that is just like, you know what? Trevor is going to be, you know, I love his name is Trevor too. This is like the <laughs> whitest possible. Yeah, but like Trevor, you know, like if he if he's going to treat me like shit, like I'm going to, you know, I'll show him up. No matter what, I'll show him that I'm brave or whatever. You get a feeling that there's a kind of forcefulness there that's a compensation for her dismissal, you know. And then, um, you know, and so because in the beginning she's like, We're, I'm going to bury you with my project, she says to the other academics, you know. And then uh, and then just not being believed that she didn't kill her friend, you know, mm-hmm. and, and her dealing with other people's beliefs. So I think there's this whole uh, realm of who's worth believing and the truth is <laughs> if you don't believe the right in the right things like you're screwed and at the very end of the movie i mean i guess maybe i don't know maybe we actually shouldn't spoil it because there'll probably be a whole new round of people watching this movie oh my god for the first time yeah and i just exactly. watched it for the first time last night and i feel better about art at all i feel better about storytelling full mm-hmm. stop mm-hmm. having watched this mm-hmm. you know and like i think obviously because it's a it's set in Chicago. It's set in like projects, and I like it's. But it's also based on this story about Liverpool and class within Liverpool mm. and flats. Just it's about flats, you know, and mythos. And uh, I feel like, and having heard the story of it again and again as a child from the kids who lived in the flats, I I feel like I don't know. I feel like I want to watch fifty more times and learn more things from it, or like if I missed something, um, the visually it's stunning as well like the grime of it and the intensity of the there's a very particular kind of horror that comes from those kind of corridors and i was going to say this with hellraiser as well there's this moment where uh, kirsty um opens a door and there's this fucking cool corridor that like expands into the walls you know the moment i'm talking about Mm -hmm. i think she's just opened the puzzle box and the centibites are like what up and she's like fuck and she opens the door in the big long corridor and uh that kind of use of space is really compelling. Mm. Like, and like the hot, the house mm. in Hellraiser, the walls, there's a wall bleeding moment. I'm just like, fucking love to see it. I mean, if uh, you, it's probably better that you saw this after you wrote other words for smoke. Uh, I was sitting there <laughs> holding my knees being just like, Harry, <laughs> It's Harry. funny because I actually, I thought, I thought you were actually maybe influenced by some of Clive Barker's stuff or other words for smoke because there is such an affinity there. Yeah, Especially this time. line between fantasy and horror that gets so blurred, blurred. by mm. his work. Also, 
the the space the spatial thing is really interesting because I don't know if you guys have read House of Leaves. Oh yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> incre- incredible yeah, novel, yeah. right? But like basically, for people who haven't read it, you know, the premise is this guy buys a house and he's measuring the house and he realizes it's one foot larger inside than it is outside, outside yeah. and then suddenly a door appears like somewhere. And in it's house. just a little wardrobe on the first day, and him yeah. and his brother are like, "What the fuck?" And then the next day, it's like a slightly bigger wardrobe. Yeah, yeah right, right. <laughs> and then eventually, it's a labyrinth. It's, it's it, Yeah, it's a crazy. But I love that feeling of there's always something more. There's always a puzzle beyond. So even in Hellraiser at the end, which I don't feel that's when like, so the sound bites are bad, but then you get this weird thing at the end, this guy that you keep seeing in the movie that has this long Big fucking David Lynch head on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at a certain point he's eating crickets in a a pet store, you know, and they're like jumping out of his beard. beard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then at the end, you know, of the movie, he basically, it's, it's the great dragon Satan, you know, and he, and he, takes the box and flies off and it that reminds me of um so there's a a a story by richard matheson called the box which got turned into a really bad movie by the guy who made darnie darko unfortunately but um but also it was a tales from the dark side episode this is another like an 80s tv show that's impossible to find if someone can tell me how to find tales from the dark side streaming please do because i really want to watch it much better episode where this guy comes to the door like there's someone there's like a knock at the door and there's this couple and they they open uh and the the wife opens the door and the guy's like hi i have this box for you and they're like what and he's like and there's a button on the box he says just press the button and we'll come back and I'll, I'll give you a million dollars. And she's like, that's it? And he said, yeah, but someone that you don't know will die if you press the button. And so Ooh. the whole thing is like spirals out of them dealing with this box. Should we press it? Should we not press it? And I think in the end she presses it and she's just like, she's like, come on. You know, they're having like money problems or whatever. She presses it and immediately there's a knock at the door and she opens and there's a guy and he gives her a suitcase and it has a million dollars in it and he's like thank you and he picks up the box and he starts walking out she's like what are you doing with the box he's like oh i have to give this to somebody you don't know and so so the idea then that like the box is going to be given to somebody else again too it's like even the small trials, like the huge trials of these people having literally encountering hell and having their skin flens off their bones and the torture and the screaming, it's just like, yeah, but I'm just going to pick this up and give it to someone else now. So like, yeah, yeah, minor, minor. Yeah, exactly. Just like, it's just going on. This is not actually about you. It's about the box. Yeah, you know? exactly. It's almost impersonal horror. Yes. Like the Cenobites were like, for for. Frank, that's sort of a bitch. Where is he? We've been busy, you know? Frank hasn't been here for a while, has he actually? He's alive? (laughs) He's alive? Fuck that guy, you know? And that's a good, like, I I think that uh, nobody gives a shit about your suffering. Mm. That's scary. Yeah. That's really scary. Right, right. Like, nobody, like, the the nobody caring or nobody believing you thing Mm -hmm. is real horror. You know, like, Helen, Mm -hmm. like, no one fucking believes her. And you know what? Nor should they, (laughs) you know? Like, that, that, being part of a, the, the pullback nearly like and i liked that the film had a sort of a, a frame hellraiser had the frame of the box and the the, the screen goes inside the circle on the side of the box mm. and there's this like lovely fantasy touch to it mm. um it kind of gives it the feel of a of like a, a parable or something do you know yeah it's so it's funny that you say that so the um 
So the Books of Blood, which are my favorite, I think, of his, but just but mostly because they're short stories and I think he does those really well. They all read like parables, so mm. I highly recommend them to everybody. Um, there's, I'm just going to like give a quick summary of a few of them. Okay, so there's uh, one called The Body Politic, which starts with a guy who's asleep and his hands are on his chest and one of his hands starts like touching the other one, tapping the other one, and then until like he's they're communicating with each other and one day one hand cut, cuts off the other and then like hands like all over the world want to start liberating themselves from the people that have hands because they've been abused and forgotten and left aside there's one called um pig's blood blues which is about these uh it's basically a juvenile detention center where there's a farm in the back with this huge pig that like all the kids like worship and like bites off their fingers and their hands every nipples on them every once in a while it's really crazy in the hills of cities about these two gay guys traveling around they come across these two towns that build giant men out of their own bodies and then like fight each other um what what else i mean they're just they, you they're, should see sarah's face like, they're yeah, all these man, i mean mind-blowing fairy tales that yeah. are also parables in a way and that really leave the realms of like whatever you thought was possible imaginatively like it just goes into places that you never would have thought of before and i think Candyman, even though it's a scarier movie it has a feeling of this is connected to things I know before, mm -hmm. but I think the Hellraiser movies and some of his other work are just, I mean, they just uh, leave, you know, they, you just cannot expect something like this, no. you know? Yeah. didn't see it coming a mile away. Something I love about Hellraiser and about other words for smoke and stuff is when there's another world that's motivating all the action, you get at the tiniest glimpse of the world. Mm. Yeah. And he's not interested in explaining anything. Yeah. There's can so just, much that's Can I not telling you anything? There's like, like, you know, they're from somewhere and you see like a little dungeon-y thing. Yeah. with some meat skewers mm -hmm. and that's it but you I, I, you see more of it in Hellbound I think yes but um, but yeah it just leaves so much unsaid and like I was reading all the uh, summaries of all those short stories yesterday and you know when you just come across something you're like this person is an alien to me. <laughs> I cannot understand how anybody how where this comes from yeah what it's not right what you know it can't be right what you know no. you know there's something else going on and I don't, I don't understand it. It's so interesting to me. But like that's, I think, what differentiates for me in my limited enough scope of both writers. Um, differentiate like literally the last week has been my Clive Barker week, and I only came to Stephen King through literally the last two years, three years. Mm -hmm. So he was informative for me. Mm -hmm. But in mentioning them both as sort of these like horror legends, like Clive Barker is from a different fucking planet to Stephen King. Mm -hmm. Like. Stephen, we all know Stephen King's a hack. Like he's a good hack, but he's a hack. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to see Clive Barker's eight. Do you know what I mean? I want to see. Mm -hmm. I, I I now want to see what that horror could have been if it wasn't so hung up on the shallowness do you, of of the world. Like Stephen King is very the the stuff he writes about her is very um, it's not realism, but like I. I think that the I'm I'm trying to I'm trying so to say it's something. a representation but, of things. It's like Marvel. Yeah. It's like Marvel mm. comics, you know. Yes. Um. Whereas top top skin, like and yeah, yeah. I want to see the horror. I think that I'm interested in is and the stories that I'm interested in and interested in making are ones that are just like didn't fucking see that one coming, did you? 
you know, like, right. you know, I, th- I think that's, that's actually why, like if for Stephen King, I don't know if you saw Dr. Sleep, but it was the best. I mean, that movie is absolutely incredible. And it it's, I mean, it was surprisingly so I was like, I'm not going to watch a two and a half hour sequel to the shining. Like what the yeah, hell? Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but actually it it's unbelievable. It's, it's much better than Stanley Kubrick's movie. I mean, Stanley Kubrick's a, it's a better, that's a better filmic movie, but as, uh, a, a horror movie it's not quite as good as dr sleep uh, and the the reason is he does that in that movie i haven't read the book but sometimes stephen king will hit it and when mm. he does hit it you know like he, he that great story about the wind up monkey with the symbols um someone buys a cursed wind up monkey with like symbols that one's great you know i think it's just called the monkey and every once in a while he'll just nail it but it's because he does that it's because he says this isn't going to be about anxieties that we already have externalized, merely externalized as a horror feature, mm-hmm. which is like what a lot of science fiction movies do too. Like men are afraid of the rise of feminism. Let's do Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, you know, mm-hmm. like that kind of stuff. That's great, but the metaphorical tellings of things that we already, you know. It's a bit direct or something. Yeah, mm. it's, it, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't go enough. It's not free enough, I should say. You know, um, your your novels are are free. I mean, they're not representations. They're something new and free, right? And so I think Stephen King, um, you know, he nailed. But Clyde Barker is always in that realm. Always, you know, it's like I, I'm trying to bring you into the realm of the imagination, you know, rather than just draw an imaginative thing over top the world that you already know. That's it. And mm. I think the time that's given to the weird shit in Hellraiser, for example, like you, it, it doesn't, there's no just like, let's look at the normal world again for a second to contrast the weird shit that's going on in the house. Once you're in the house, you're in the house. Once you know that Frank is upstairs in the house, you are just <laughs> continually back in the house again and again and again. Like the upset like uh, I, I love obsession as a theme I think it's some well not as a theme but it's something I can never stop writing about I'm always writing about obsession and so when I see it represented so fucking well mm-hmm. that like the, the story nearly has myopia do you know it just mm-hmm. goes into the fucking walls of the house yep. do you know mm-hmm. and Julia isn't we don't really know anything about Julia other than she bound down with her husband's brother and now can't stop thinking about it but we don't really need to know anything more about that because it's actually not about the act it's about the feeling and the surrealism of obsession and the intersection of pain and pleasure like yeah. it's about that weird gray intersection point and it's actually not really about anything else it's like nearly like a study in that sensation so everything that you see including all the monsters including the like feeding of these terrible men to Frank, like everything that you see is a is in service to this. They're so awful. The guy that's about to have sex with her is like, gotta go empty the old bladder. Oh my <laughs> god! And he's just pantsless. Oh, he's awful. just French naked. This is deeply unflattering angle. The camera's on the ground. And his socks are real long, and it's just like, Christ, have some self respect. But then he gets eaten, so it's fine. You know, um, I I I think that that. Everything being in service to that metaphor and to that not metaphor, but that study of uh, of sensation is is uh, why it's brilliant because it's kind of like there's no real compromise in it, mm-hmm. do you know? And definitely Kirsty being the final girl, like and kind of blustering in with her goodness and her white blouse, you know, like mm-hmm. it's it's also still not about her, mm-hmm. do you know? 
we obviously would like her to survive because she hasn't done anything wrong, but it's it's not really a film about people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I mean it, it. It is, but it's. I mean, in the way, like weirdly, in the way that like a Chekhov story is about people, yeah. like you're getting a pit, you're getting a little bit of their lives. But then I, I think, again, you see the the boxes being carried somewhere else. So you know that the story is going to enact itself mm. again in another way. And that's the, you know, um, what is your pleasure, sir? Like, you know, someone sitting across the table, like, what's your pleasure, sir? OK, here's your box, you know. Um, so, I, yeah. And I, I want to say one more time, like in a different way, you know, Grant Morrison, the comic book writer, he talked about Frank Miller and some of these other very popular comic book writers. And he said, you know, everybody just seemed to be like taking Batman or whatever here's and and saying, what if this was more like the real world? Like, what if this was? And I always thought, why, why would you want to bring the comic book world into the quote unquote real world? Why don't we elevate ourselves into the comic world? where the colors are bright, the things are crazy, all sorts of bizarre things are happening and um, everything's exaggerated and huge. And I think that as far as horror goes, I think Clive Barker's doing that. I mean, in fact, in some ways, that's the theme of Hellraiser, mm. <laughs> you know. Um, Going into a different realm of being. But I think there's, I think the answer to that, and I have a really, I have a long, we've never done a Batman episode. It's probably better mm. for the general, uh, it's probably better for my mentions. <laughs> and uh, I've had many uh, ugly arguments with people about my dislike for um, the superhero industrial complex. And a lot of them, I'm like, I <laughs> yeah. love the Tim Burton campery. I love yeah. that early yeah. kind of four, like fucking BDSM running around on rooftops, like Uma Thurman. Like, I love that shit, right? That makes me actually interested mm. in the idea of superhuman ability and mad gothic cities where everything is fucked and like that's exciting to me sad millionaire going and working out for a while who so he can like beat up a bunch of vigilante like that's not the same story actually and that self-seriousness is fucking boring like that that is not what i go to stories for you know, I'm, I'm sure it's what lots of people go to stories for, that realism. Yeah. And you're dead right. Elevating the fantastic into more areas of fantasy or like beyond where we live now is it's ri- it's risky because you can fail. You have to navigate camp. You have to navigate costume. You have to navigate the idea that you might get it fucking wrong. Mm-hmm. Where there is this disgusting, like limp neutrality to the way that we tell stories about the fantastic now, because it's risk averse, mm-hmm. it's financial mm-hmm. risk averse, it's cultural risk averse. You would never see a poison ivy like Uma Thurman again, right? You right. know, yeah. Like, There's um, I read a 2015 interview with Clive Barker in Grantland, where the interview says it's he was it's when he was promoting the last Pinhead book where he killed Pinhead because he actually hates the name Pinhead. You don't know that. Oh. He calls him the Hell Priest. Is his actual name better name? Um. But the injury says there's a bit in this book that was so disgusting I had to put it down. And Clive Barker goes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yes. Many, many people have said that to me about this one. Brilliant. Like, yeah. that's exactly what you want. You I have know. to swing for the fences. Yeah. You do. I had an argument with my editor about one particular scene. In other words, for smoke, which I allowed in. And well, it was I was allowed in in the mm. end. But I sacrificed a lot of other stuff for one particular scene, which mm. is, I think, I think the, the Sweet James makes Bevan eat, eat, uh, um, eat hair. 
and my editor was like, yeah, yeah, this is way too fucking far. And I was like, I know, man. <laughs> and I cut loads of other things yeah, just so yeah. I could have the forced hair eating. She was like, can he, can he just not laugh at her? And I was like, no, the point is that he thinks it's funny because <laughs> like, he's not good. And you're meant to push things. And I, get, I hear back about that all the time because you're meant to make people fucking feel uncomfortable. Like you're meant to be moving into different places and you're meant like if you actually want to be to to escape or to go somewhere else you have to risk things and uh, yeah and i think i mean even <laughs> well this is interesting this going in this direction but i mean i think even like now if we talk about our political imaginations which are so constrained by anxiety yeah. and the um the idea that only like a kind of marginal change is possible and that the marginal change keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller I think actually people's attitudes towards art has a lot to do with that and has a lot of culpability in that. And part of it is saying, well, we're going to make art flow into the political and sort of realistic circumstances that already exist. And all our art is going to be about these political topics and all that. And I always say there's no such thing as political art. Like, I actually don't believe it exists because art is bigger than politics. And politics can, you can make art and politics will arise out of it or a kind of realism will arise out of it. And that's fine. But you can't start from the non-imaginative realm, you know, and then just sort of force your art into it. You know, it just doesn't work. And again, like it, some of the, some examples of that, some people do that really, really well. So, you know, I mean, I like The Watchmen, the graphic novel. I like the second Christopher Nolan Batman movie. I don't like the others particularly, but, uh, you know, The Dark Knight is pretty good. But the 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 problem with all of that is that we're not – the most expansive thing that we can do is engage with our imaginative capabilities um, and in fact, that's uh, to quote Grant Morrison again, you know, he was saying, well, when I was a kid, my parents were anti-war activists and they were always talking about the bomb and how to stop it. And I saw that the, the bomb was uh, an idea first and then it became a thing. And I was reading Superman comics and I thought, well, if, if there was an idea that became a thing, isn't Superman a better idea? So I'm going to engage in that. Now, I think that that's a responsibility that we have is to engage in the infinite, uh, the infinity of the imagination and to go as much into it as possible rather than constantly trying to put it in these little sort of constraining boxes that fit what we already know. It, it, it can give us so much more than that. So it's the opposite direction. And I think that that's what Clive Barker does. And yeah. that's why it was so, one of the reasons why it was so important to me and he does it with horror, which is also very surprising because I think we are used to more of the Stephen King kind of horror where the disruption occurs in a way that fits into everything else. And in fact, that is that is a trope of horror where the world gets unearthed by one sort of thing going wrong, like in House of Leaves. But how far, like it, it's showing the entirety of this other world, like you were saying, like, no, there's 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 a whole like labyrinth behind that wall, you know. All you have to do is turn a little cube one way, and suddenly, you know, there's a whole cosmos that yeah. opens up to us. Yeah. Like I think there's in in it, for example, which I feel like I don't know. I've had again, it's one of those books that I've had, or and stories that I've had really bare knuckle um, rows of people over because I fucking love it, and. Mm. Um, I think that there's so much focus in the story put on the insecurities of the characters and the horror being a manifestation directly right. of 
masculine security and then Beverly's uh, the one girl uh, she's just afraid of being raped <laughs> and rightly so and that's the horror that she gets whereas the masculine horror is like I'm afraid of a scary painting <laughs> oh <Right>. clowns <laughs> don't feel so good whereas poor Beverly's just like I really would like to be safe uh, to not, oh. you know like there's a there's a real unintentional disparity there do you yeah, know so people yeah. show themselves up nearly when they're trying to make hmm. like you can see the you can see the failings of of the 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 worldview nearly behind us when when you attempt to execute these huge imaginative Roberta commas like uh, metaphors within a text for people's insecurities you show yourself too hard whereas I watched Hellraiser and I had no idea about anything who Clive Barker is as a person other than he probably fucks like that is literally <laughs> the only thing I know about who Clive Barker is I'm not just like Clive Barker hates women right. which is often what I feel like when I walk away from horror is I'm like man these people fucking hate women oh, yeah. I didn't feel that at all yeah. at all you know and neither from Candyman you know the, mm. the 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 and which is a deeply fucking relevant powerful political text mm. but it's also about folklore mm. and um, community and it's 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 inherently about race in America, but it's also about like ghosts. Mm-hmm. You know, it mm-hmm. is allowed to be about fucking ghosts and haunted buildings and haunted communities. Yeah. It's allowed to be about both. You know, and uh, and we need more of that in our we need more of that in our lives. Yeah, right. there's room for there's room for people to be, but the risk is what I, I keep coming back to. Like you couldn't make a film like Hellraiser today. Mm-hmm. you can make a Candyman today thank fucking god mm-hmm. and I think Jordan Peele is going to do something beautiful with it well I mean the third season of Twin Peaks is is close in its yeah. way to Hellraiser you know interestingly yeah. right yeah. like this different dimension full of beings that show up and you don't exactly know what they're going to do how they're going to react scurry around in the background for yeah. long bizarre sequences in black and white while a whooshing soundscape it's amazing like yeah. It's, yeah. it's an expression of a truth that we aren't privy to mm-hmm. but it's very compelling Yeah. And even like, I mean, you can see like even that weird containment cube that the thing shows up in in the the first episode. Right. I think it is where. Yeah. yeah, You know, and then it just like gets closer and closer and then just, you know, like like obliterates them, you know, the couple. But I mean, I think even. So I, I think that there are, I think actually (laughs) that's probably the closest analog to it. Yeah. 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 In terms of the freedom to. I think David Lynch talks about this a lot with transcendental meditation, which is not something I'm into. But every so often, I'm just like, I'm mostly still locked down. I could just get real into it, man. Just get real into transcendental <laughs> meditation this winter. Like, learn a new skill. But he talks a bit about looking for the big fish, which is yeah. like, when you're creating something, you just sort of sit over the water of the self. And um, something eventually will move from under the surface like a shadow. Mm-hmm. And you don't know what it's going to fucking be when it comes out. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like you sort of trust the images and the things that come out of your brain to mean something if you work with them enough instead of it's a different kind of intentionality. Like you have to make work and especially with horror, you've kind of got I do believe in responsibility to an extent with that kind of stuff where you have to be intentional about the work that you make. But when it comes to actually creating it, mm-hmm. like surrendering to the weird void, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, that's where all the good shit comes from, I think. I don't know. Uh, and Hellraiser being that good shit <laughs> I can't wait to watch the next one and I can't wait to watch Nightbreed yeah. I'm so pumped like, yeah and and, and uh, Lord Lord or Master of Illusions I always forget the title of that one but that's that's pretty good too I think I think you know I would just say like 
I do believe in responsibility when making art in some ways, but actually, you know, James Tate, this poet that I really love, you know, he said, I only feel responsible to my imagination. And if you are actually responsible to your imagination, it actually, it, it ends up taking care of a lot of the other stuff, you know? Um, and in fact, a lot of times people that try to force the responsibility do all kinds of like missteps and stupidity and all that sort of stuff. And I think, you know, like, if you ask yourself, is this really my imagination? Am I really engaged in the sort of creative uh, expanse of my inner landscape? Or am I just sort of inserting these tropes here or, you know, um, borrowing from these stupid cultural ideas that have harmed people or what, you know, then it just kind of clears up a lot, you know? So I agree with the responsibility, but I also, and I also think that there might be a different kind, mm -hmm. if that makes sense, yeah. Risk, I think it comes back to risk all the time. Yeah. You have to, it's risky. Like you have to take take chances. And it is sad that something like Hellraiser couldn't, I don't think they'll, I sometimes, we sometimes see things with you and either I'm like, no one would ever make that now. Mm. You would never get it now. It's so, the cinema, modern cinema is so sanitized. Mm. And that, that whole situation, that 90 sweet minutes was off the chain. <laughs> like you'd never get that out now. You never mm. would. Uh, I am cautious of our timing. Uh, have we any closing remarks? Have you any recommendations to our, our listeners? Yeah, have you any, unplug all your stuff. Unplug well, everything. Your many, many things. Um, yeah. <laughs> any recommendations for people to get into Clive Barker? What starting points would you recommend? Uh, yeah. And please plug the living daylight side of things you make. Okay. Um, so Clive Barker, yeah, I would read the Books of Blood. I think that those are really good place to start. Um, some of the stories that I mentioned before. Um, he has a really beautiful, very, very sad novel about um, sort of about AIDS, not really, and, and a fox <laughs> called Sacrament. Uh, that's really, I mean, really profoundly moving. Um, and I, as far as my stuff goes um so yeah i mean i do, should i everything yeah, all of it okay yep. Yep. <laughs> okay <laughs> so um so my podcast which sarah has been on is called against everyone with connor habib and we uh we go i think as deep as any podcast really and that's my favorite thing about it is like it's a big talk you know not a small talk show i mean i like small talk shows too but it's a big talk show and it's a you know we Whenever uh, I think we should stop, we go we go further. So um, I really like that. Um, and when Sarah and Sarah was on the show, uh, right after we talked, all the lights went off in Dublin. Um, it was amazing. The whole street. It was right unreal. as we did like tarot readings for each other too. Um, so it unleashed some pretty least powerful things in Dublin that night. Yeah. Um, and you know, there have been lots of other, uh, writers and musicians and, uh, so forth on, uh, Ian Mackay from Fugazi was just on Billy Bragg, Mona El-Tahawi, the horror writer, Brian Evanson. I'm just trying to think of the people. I really that, love know, the Kelly Link episode. Oh, no, Kelly Link like has been on. Yeah. Episode. Kelly Link and Jordy Rosenberg. Yeah. Um, so and then I might I have a novel which is a horror novel coming out uh, next. Uh, it's a literary horror novel, whatever that means. But it's coming out next year, uh, next summer, thankfully. So I, I'm hoping to do a, a book tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll get you back on and, when it comes out. We'll yeah, that's called on. Hawk Mountain, yeah, yeah. and um, you know. So, but my Patreon is sort of my main uh, gig. So it's Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. 
C-O-N-N-E-R-H-A-B-I-B. And uh, there's all kinds of stuff there. Like I do like little meetings uh, with all my patrons once a month about a topic. Uh, this month we talked about angels. We've talked about psychoanalysis. We've talked about Rudolf Steiner and the occult. So it's all over the place. And is that it? Social media, the only social media I really have is Twitter. So at Connor Habib. Yeah. Sarah, where can we find you? Oh, in my house. <laughs> <laughs> On twitter.com at Grifsky. Um, I have books in bookshops, uh, other words for smoke and swearing fan parts. Um, I make zines. So if you follow me on the internet, you can probably find them. And the next time I do them, give or take once a month. Um, that's been my little 2020 kind of lifeline. Um, Alan, what about you? Uh, I'm Alan underscore McGuire everywhere. Uh, Juvenalia is my only thing. Um, it's Juvenalia underscore pod on Twitter, Juvenalia pod on Instagram. Uh, thank you to Dean McDonald for our artwork. Thanks, Dee. Uh, we also have a Patreon. There are bonus episodes. We're going to record a bonus episode Today. now pretty much yeah, about yeah. like indie games and stuff. Yeah. Um, and there's other stuff up there. Yeah. And, and we'll we you miss you, Alan. And, and we miss Alan. Yeah. 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 Hi, Alan. And we're a Tall Tales podcast. Thank you to Cassie. Who's been episode. vibing in the corner. What up? In yeah. real life. Yeah. <laughs> Um, She's just been playing with this puzzle box the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Having a think, think about pins, you know, hooks, it's great. Uh, yeah, listen to other Tall Tales podcasts. Give the Creep Dive and um, Private Education a listen. They rule. Um, I think that's us, is it? Yeah, we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks see you in so two much, weeks. Connor Thanks, Connor Thank Bye, you. everybody. Bye.